You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On today's show, we sit down with Wendy Shu, who's founded Build an Education after volunteering in Nepal for disaster relief during the April 2015 earthquake that damaged over 9,000 schools. Build an Education mission serves to alleviate extreme poverty by supporting education and building schools to spark a legacy of change. Wendy is also an ultramarathon runner and completed the 56K Cami de Cavell's North Island route in Menorah, Spain. On today's episode, we talk about how is scaling a mountain like scaling a startup? What is multidimensional poverty? How does education impact the cycle of poverty? How does one go about learning the business culture in another country? From winning Miss Nepal, how does building a personal brand help with what you are doing? And what are some of the hidden benefits of winning a beauty pageant? This and much more on today's episode. Now remember, please go on your podcast platform, give us a great review, and encourage us to create great content like this in the future. All right, now let's start the show. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Wendy, thank you for taking the time today to be on the Silicon Valley Podcast. Now, we're here at the Sapien Impact Hub in Menlo Park, who's our venue sponsor, <laughs> with our live studio audience. So, this is very exciting. Now, Wendy, you're the founder of Building Education, whose motto is a thousand schools and a million lives. Now, you're a beauty pageant winner. You've conquered mountains, both physically and mentally. And you're the today's guest of honor on the podcast. Now, before we start, is there anything else you'd like to add to that? Or should we just go right into the heavy questions? I think first off, I want to say thank you so much to Sean for having me as a guest on this podcast. Um, it really is an honor and I'm humbled. And thank you for um, thank you to Sapiens Impact Hub for allowing us this beautiful space to work on. All right. Well, I guess we don't have anything to edit out. We're good to go. <laughs> we are good to go. Nothing to edit. <laughs> Wendy. <laughs> so what is your founding story? Can you tell us about how, from my understanding, you turned a tragedy into a purpose? Now, can you share that story? Yes. Um, so my whole platform is about turning tragedy to purpose. And the story really starts back to losing my mother at a very young age. So I lost my mother when I was eight years old. And um, my father was a single working father raising three children. And what that created was I really had a lack of guidance. So, you know, I went from being basically like a really good student in school, as most Asian kids in school are, um, to not having the proper guidance that I needed to continue on that path and a lack of like attention at home because my father was really busy trying to put food on the table. So essentially what happened was I actually became a rebel. And I was delinquent in high school, meaning that I was truant and I transferred to three different high schools before graduating. And then I always say education is what saved my life. So I started going down a very bad path. And then I basically uh, had to go back to school and it, it, it changed my life. And it basically created me into a contributing member of society. So. My founding story really has to do with being able to provide children in developing countries with something very, with education. Sorry, guys. 
I'm a little bit nervous. But my founding story really has to be has to do with providing children who are underprivileged with the same opportunity that I had to become contributing members of society as well. That's interesting that Mm -hmm. you thought education kind of you're going down this, I'm not sure, dark path, but just Mm -hmm. this path that wouldn't have had a nice outcome. Mm -hmm. And yet you're able to come back and, you know, through education, I mean, you've accomplished quite a bit, but Wendy, you didn't go into too much detail about your nonprofit. So okay. can can we go a little bit deeper <clears throat> into that? What is it? What are you doing? Just give us a little bit more background. Yes. To long story short, basically what happened is I almost killed myself one day. And what I realized during that time that I was going through that was I didn't think that my life was worth living. And so from there, I learned that I really needed to find more empowerment and to discover myself. So I decided to go back to school and I went to college. I went and studied aviation science and I learned how to fly planes um, because that allowed me to really be able to feel the confidence that I needed and to feel like I was a contributing member of society. So a few years down into my profession of working in um, aviation and being a jet engine specialist, I decided to go on a volunteer trip to India. And I decided to volunteer at a girls' orphanage. And that trip actually, what it did was it really changed the way that I saw myself in the world. Um, It allowed me to see how other people in the world were also suffering and how they also needed help. It's crazy when you yeah. travel, <clears throat> how much that opens up your experience mm-hmm. to, I mean, the world. I know I got to live abroad for a good number of years. Yeah. You know, I met my wife in China. Before that, I was living in Costa Rica. I was talking to, to Chester, some of the people in the audience about that. And it's just kind of crazy how when you're abroad, I don't think there's anything, any other time in your life where you can learn so much in such a short amount of time. Mm-hmm. So you were in India, you were volunteering at this orphanage. Mm-hmm. What were you learning? Well, first of all, um, the most important thing was that, you know, the girls that I was mentoring at the girls orphanage had actually suffered through a lot bigger challenges than myself. A lot of them had gone through living in brothels. One girl in particular that I remember, she had been raped by her father like most of her life and went through six abortions. And what I realized was that these girls were still super loving, super giving, and wanted to make a difference in the world and wanted a new chance to life. And I think at the time when I was working in like the aerospace industry, I felt like the world had owed me something um, because I lost my mom. And I realized from them that I no longer had to see the world in this light and that I could be just as loving and giving as them. And there was something that I didn't understand. And there was so much more out to see in the world. And I think the challenge with being in the Bay Area or being in California or being in a developing country is that we are so privileged and we're always chasing that next thing. And we have so much in the world. Um, And then we come to places like India where stories of losing a parent or severe homelessness is very common, but yet people are still so happy in their element. So I wanted to explore that further. And essentially what happened was after that trip, I went back to my job in aviation and my CEO actually took me out for dinner and he asked me how much money I wanted to make. 
and what position I wanted. And I realized that I had no vision there. I couldn't see myself in the company and there was nothing that I wanted to do. And so I knew, knew I needed to make a change. That's kind of crazy. Like, I'm sure that dinner, he was thinking, I'm going to promote this person. She's going to be here for the next 15, 20 years or whatever. You're going to be a lifer. And instead it triggered, okay, now it's time to move away from this company. It's time to move on. Mm -hmm. So, so what happened then? So I realized there was a lot more to see in the world. And I knew that I wanted to quit my job essentially and travel and really volunteer and see what else is out there. So I kind of set out this plan um, and I thought, okay, I'll leave in about six months. So the first thing that I did was I started to look for different opportunities abroad and I decided to vol uh, to teach English in Thailand in a super rural village. So six months into that, that year I actually had brought in $5 million for the company. And what I learned was that if I could bring in $5 million there, I could bring in $5 million anywhere to any company or any organization, especially to make a bigger impact in the world. So my first step was quitting my job, selling all my things. And then I saved up enough money to travel to Thailand and teach English in a rural village. Okay. I mean, what happened then? And because also I'm curious about still going back to this idea that education is going to solve everything and this you know, multi-dimension of poverty. But before that, you landed in Thailand. Then what? So I basically lived in a super rural village where there was no running water. I taught there for about eight months. And immediately after, Paul had a really big earthquake, the 2015 earthquake that damaged 9,000 schools and killed 22,000 people. So I decided to go there and volunteer. I volunteered with an organization called All Hands, and we worked in earthquake disaster relief. So we did everything from building homes to building temporary schools to working in displacement camps. And I learned everything, like a lot of things um, that I needed to learn, I think, to start my own organization. The whole country was in ruins. It was really devastating to see all the damage that had happened. And even to this day, only 4,000 schools have been rebuilt. You said you learned everything that allowed you to start your own organization. Can you share with us some of those things that were learned? Yes, absolutely. So I think the biggest thing first and foremost was how to be able to work with our beneficiaries, like the people, and really understand the culture. I think a lot of times people from developed countries come into developing countries like Nepal and, and, and we think that we have all the answers and we think we know the right way to living and how they should be living. Um, but a lot of times it's really about being able to create solutions with the community. And so when I say the things that I needed to learn was really based on how to work with people and empowering them to be the change makers in their own community. That's interesting. Now, I understand when you were there in Nepal, you did a little bit of rock or mountaineering, did a little bit of climbing. How is, you know, scaling the, what, what's the mountains there? The, uh, it's the Himalayans. Okay. How is climb or hiking the Himalayans similar to, I don't know, getting a, a startup, scaling a startup? Well, I think first and foremost, the first trek that I did was a 14-day trek uh, called the Annapurna Circuit. And 
When I actually did that trek, it's a 14-day trek over 5,400 meters, which is about 17,000 feet. I had no experience. I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't know what I was getting into. And I think when it comes to a startup, um, that's how we all kind of begin without the experience and feeling like we aren't good enough. But starting on the journey and sticking to the journey is what then allows us to learn and become good enough to complete it. And the second thing is, it's almost like you have to be blindly committed to completing. 14 days is like really not an easy task. And I think anybody who is a trekker or a hiker will understand like how challenging it is to trek for 14 days straight. And you're basically doing half marathons every single day. And then on top of that, being able to summit up 17,000 feet. So when I first started, there was never a doubt in my mind that I would not complete that summit. And when it comes to, to a startup, I think you have to have that same type of commitment. So on that journey or with your nonprofit, the business you started, you know, sometimes decisions have to be made very quickly. Yeah. Other times they can be planned out. When do you use which type of, I mean, when do you make that quick decision? When do you plan it out from your experience? Well, I really believe in following your heart and working things out with your head because I think our heads are meant to serve us. And our heart is basically like our soul telling us which direction we should follow. We should always go for the things that we want. And so when it comes to like me moving or deciding to quit my job and sell all my things and travel the world, I think that was a heart decision, right? That was making a quick decision. But then I planned everything out in order to make it happen. And it's the same thing with starting a nonprofit organization. I think for me to decide to start the nonprofit organization was a very quick decision. But then in order to continue on this path of growing it and scaling it, that was probably a more planned out decision. So you also mentioned a little bit ago while you're in Nepal, learning about the local culture. How does one go, and, and here in Silicon Valley, so many of the, the founders are from different countries when they come here. You know, people from here try to go overseas. How does one go about learning about the business culture of another country? I think it's a lot through failures and figuring out what doesn't work. As I stated earlier, like a lot of what we did in the beginning was try to impose our ideals in a society that doesn't work. We really kind of had to figure out what didn't work with people. And part of it is telling people what to do or, or what we think would be a right decision for them. But yeah, it, it's mostly through a lot of failures. Um, and I think the best way to go about doing things is really asking people what they need and how we can be of best support and then coming to a compromise together. What about working with the local governments there? I mean, they probably saw you as this American coming over there. You know, maybe they treated you differently. Maybe they, you know, wanted different payments for things. Who knows? But what has been your experience and what advice could you give? So the government, for the most part, has been relatively supportive. I just think the challenge is that they don't do things as quickly as I feel that they need to. 
For an example, like a lot of what we do is we collaborate with local governments and how we leverage their support is, let's say in a district, there is about 20 schools that need to be rebuilt because it's still damaged. Usually what we do is we go to the local municipalities and we leverage their support in order to build, you know, the full 20. So let's say they only have budget for 10, we'll come in and we will push them to work a little bit faster in helping us to rebuild the schools together. Wait, Wendy, you actually have to tell us a little bit more about your nonprofit and what you do. I I think we skipped over that little bit. I think we did skip over a lot of it. Thank you. Where would you like me to start? Tell us. (laughs) Tell us about it. So how the organization started is um, right after my volunteer experience, I was actually approached by a man, a local guy, and he was the principal of a school. And he asked me for help to rebuild his school, which was damaged by the earthquake. The kids were studying in a school that was ready to collapse at any moment. He actually bothered me for about six months regarding this. And it was just a simple wall rebuild. And it was just $2,000. So after a while, I was like, okay, $2,000. I know that for sure I can fundraise that. And one simple wall rebuild became an entire school rebuild project. So we ended up expanding the school and bringing the toilets indoors and the kitchen indoors. And that school grew from 30 students to about 70 students. We saw a lot of success with that very first school. It was actually in a slum village located in Pokhara, like right outside of a metropolitan city. And uh, we found out that a lot of the people that had settled there were earthquake victims that had moved out from the mountains and they had nowhere else to go. So it was actually government owned land. And we started off with that first school rebuild project and we noticed that, you know, we had a lot of success because a lot of kids wanted to learn. They wanted to study. The next step was there was a lot of deaths when I first got there. I think I would hear about like two or three deaths every single month. And I had no idea why people were dying. I didn't understand what was going on, but I knew that there wasn't a water source on site. So the next step was we installed a water system and that water system was able to supply 105 homes with water. And since then, I feel like now I only hear about deaths maybe two to three times a year. After that, we realized that we wanted to put electricity in the area, and that enabled the center to have Wi-Fi. So the kids were able to have access to Wi-Fi and access to knowledge and information on their own. And in the beginning, it was really hard because many of the parents weren't really completely bought into the whole idea of education. But I think they saw that a lot of their children started to become empowered decision makers. And slowly, they started to really believe in education as well. So what we essentially created was more empowered children that have the ability to speak English, that have the ability to speak Nepalese, the the local language, so that they had government representation. And then the parents themselves started to go to the governments and ask for support, to petition for support. So we created this, well, I I really believe that the beneficiaries did it themselves, but by giving them the empowerment and the education that they needed, it gave them the faith and, you know, the belief in themselves to make a difference in their own communities. This kind of creates that this journey started with 
one person bothering you for six months for a wall. Now you got a school. Now you got electricity. Now you got water. Now, when did you decide in that process to go, okay, I'm going to pivot this from helping to actually making this a nonprofit and building this out? Well, the funny thing is, I never actually planned it out to be a nonprofit, but people were donating so much money. I realized that I needed to be able to provide, you know, tax write offs to people. So it started off as that, just getting our 501c3 to begin with. And then slowly, as all the problems came and we had one solution, you know, we created solutions for each problem. We then had created this model and we call it our community development model of rebuilding schools, providing children with education, creating a water source, and then after that, creating clean energy into the space and repaving roads. So it sounds like you were kind of learning everything as it was going. I mean, you were an employee working on plane engines, and now you're expanding this nonprofit. How were you learning on, you know, the skills and that on the job while this was going on, or it still is, but as this is growing. Sorry, say that again? Ask the question again. <laughs> oh, how did you go about adopting the new skills needed to get you and the company to the next level? I feel like when it comes to any organization or company, it will only grow as much as the founder has grown. So I always, I just continue to educate myself. On the topic of multidimensional poverty, I started to learn about rural villages and I talked to a lot of entrepreneurs in Nepal about what they thought would be the best uh, solutions for communities like these. So I did a bit of research, but it was a lot through learning what didn't work and trying out different solutions. Um, We tried with the first community, we've been building a sustainability model of having the community start businesses um, and having the school start a business. So we tried different things like reusable menstruation pads and saffron farming, and a few of those didn't work. Our latest project is the hydroponics project. So I think what, what we really did was just try out different solutions and figure out what worked and what didn't work and talk to experts and entrepreneurs that were local themselves. How important do you think it is to have the right advisors, right outside sources of information for a company, a startup to grow and succeed? I think it's really important because the founder never knows any, everything, right? And I think it really relies on people that are experienced in the field, that have a good idea, that have done it before to be able to guide them into the right directions of creating something successful. You use the term, and maybe we talked about it a little bit, if we can go further, multidimensional poverty. Mm-hmm. Can you dive into that topic with kind of what it is and maybe mm-hmm. what are some potential solutions that you're working on? Yes. So the international poverty line is $1.90, and about 18% of Nepal lives below the international poverty line, then 30% of the population lives between $1.90 and 320 a day. So multidimensional poverty is not actually based on income or how much they make daily, but it's actually based on a person's access to water, to education, to energy, to healthcare, and to basic infrastructure. 
So while our first project, we worked in a slum area, a lot of the areas that we work now are more in more in the rural villages where, you know, the students that we support have to walk two hours a day just to get to school or two hours a day just to get to a water source. So most of our communities, like our second and our third school that we have built, suffer from multidimensional poverty. And, and it takes them two hours just to walk to school or two hours just to get water. And then they come to a facility that's actually damaged by the earthquake that hasn't been repaired yet. And I think what happens is because it's not a facility that is well equipped, the parents then take them out of school, which then repeats a cycle of poverty. So education is the solution to this or what's the solution? In my opinion, yes, because currently the communities that we support in these rural villages suffer from food insecurity six months out of the year. And they don't speak the local Nepalese language and they don't have the knowledge it takes to really build sustainable villages. So what our schools plan to support in is to be able to provide education that would teach them entrepreneurship skills and to provide food security with our hydroponic systems on site. Um, in addition to that, there will be water sources on site. So the education that we hope to provide, the curriculum that we plan to provide, teaches about entrepreneurship and teaches about project management and math. And it teaches them how to speak the local language to fight for government representation. So in my opinion, yes. I feel like, you know, if we look into any developing country, what has been able to develop uh, rural villages is through the empowerment of education. The hydroponics program, all these programs you're talking about, I mean, it takes money to do. Yes. I mean, you had mentioned the poverty line, $3.90 or $1.20. Sounds like you're really good at, you know, being able to raise capital for these projects, which is something here in Silicon Valley, startups, everyone are always asking. Is there any tips or tricks that you've learned from you know, raising money for your your nonprofit that you could share with our listeners? To fundraising. So, I mean, it's not very different from a startup, like a regular startup. I think the way that we first started was really just through crowdfunding. So a lot of that started from like GoFundMe's, um, also through Facebook fundraisers. And we host a lot of events. So our events is really what brings in a lot of the money. And then the second thing is pitch decks. So we have pitch decks that we share with people that could be legacy sponsors that are willing to sponsor larger projects that we feel like are called to our mission. And then last is grants. Okay. And then during this process also, you became Miss Nepal. Can you talk to us about one, what are the benefits of winning a beauty pageant that we might not know about and kind of that social awareness, that brand building that happens at that same time? Sure. I think one of the benefits of winning Miss Nepal is definitely that it pushed me to become the best version of myself. So I always say like, you know, a title doesn't make you who you are, but it's what you make out of the title. And it allowed me to put myself on a social platform. And having that social platform, I really wanted to be 
a good example to other females, especially to the girls that look up to me in Nepal and in India. So I think in, internally, like it, it made me become everybody, everything that I have ever wanted to be in life. And how I did that was really get an idea of who is Miss Nepal. And I created essentially an avatar and I changed all the habits about myself that I wasn't so happy with. So starting off with that, I think it pushes, it will push any woman to become the best version of themselves, right? To want to be better for other people, to be an example. When it comes to the benefits of it, I feel like, you know, you get to meet a lot of great people, especially like Vince here in the audience, uh, first of all. And you learn a lot about branding and fundraising and marketing yourself. Can you share a little bit more about that brand and that marketing? I mean, you're everywhere on social media and a lot of us, including myself, want to know how to improve, want to know how to do it better. Yeah, sure. So honestly, I just am very social. So I go out to a lot of different events. And when it comes to branding and marketing, very similar to the answer that I had earlier, I just try to get an idea of like, who am I? What am I about? What is my mission? What are my values? And how can I create an avatar around that and then live up to those expectations? So for myself, I'm really all about giving back and making an impact in the world and helping as many lives as I can. So I ask myself like, well, who do I have to be in order to become that person? And then from there, I really try to exemplify that. And I think when it comes to branding and marketing, what I do is I really just go out and meet people and find people that I look up to and think, how can I be more like that person and create the best version of myself? So you'd mentioned Vincent, who's here in the audience, who's the head of Miss Asian Global. Can you talk about that organization, what they're, what they're doing this year? Yes, absolutely. So Miss Asian Global is having their pageant in August. Um, I'm personally not with Miss Asian Global. I actually aged out of that pageant, but Vince found me and he really mentored me and pushed me to do to go into pageantry. And he really kind of took me under his wing. So I'm part of the Global Citizen Collective, which is actually in Washington, D.C. But Miss Asian Global took me under their wings and mentored me and you know, exposed me to all of the queens here in in San Francisco in the Bay Area and has really supported me to, you know, continue doing the work that I'm doing. Um, they do have an upcoming pageant here in August. Okay. Well, hopefully we'll have a couple of their, the people in the pageant on this show. And we'll leave that up to Vincent, of course. I got another question for you before we, we kind of wrap this up. Actually, two or three more questions, but I was wondering, you know, you're not part of Miss Asian Global, but yet you collaborate th with them. How important is being able to collaborate versus just being competitive when it comes to, you know, success in life, success in business? I believe everything is through collaboration. And that's the only way that we grow. I mean, you know, essentially, we all need each other to survive. We're all on this planet together. So, of course, it's human nature to be competitive, especially we live in a capitalist country like um, the United States. But I think if we want anything to be successful, it's all about collaboration and working together and lifting one another. 
And is there any final takeaways you want to give other founders, other founders of mission-driven projects, mission-driven goals out there? Any final last words? I would say the most important thing that I learned is while it's really important when you're growing an organization to hit metrics and to hit goals, what's more important is to remember why you started the organization in the first place, which is to help people and to have compassion for your the people that you are supporting just because, you know, whether it's profit or nonprofit, we're all here to create solutions in the world and to make a difference. So to never forget that and always come back to finding compassion for others and love and being of support. And Wendy, with that, if anyone wants to find out more information about you, your nonprofit, what you're doing, any of the things that you're involved in, how should they go about doing that? Yes. So we have a website. Our website is www.bebuildingeducation.org. Our Instagram is Building Education. Um, Same thing with our Facebook. And then next week, we have an upcoming event, our Speakeasy event, to raise money for our fourth school building project. Fantastic. We're going to have all that information in the show notes. And for our audience out there, please connect with us on all our social media channels, Instagram, LinkedIn, TikTok. Just search for the Silicon Valley podcast. And for our audience out there, if you're interested in working with an investment banker for mergers, acquisitions, raising growth capital, secondaries, any of those things, you want to have a conversation, connect with me on social media. And with that, I want to thank Vincent for making the intro for today's episode. I want to thank Sapiens for hosting us. And I want to thank the live studio audience here for being here. Thank you. And Wendy, with that, I want to thank you for being this week's guest on the Silicon Valley podcast. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.